Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord God has made it plain to Samuel that Saul has been removed from being king. The Lord God has torn the kingdom of Israel from King Saul. It's now a very, very strange situation there because there is no and has been no precedent for this. Saul was the first king. We begin chapter 16 today with the Lord talking to his prophet Samuel. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. Be reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came... He looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. For this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I hope every one of us not only appreciates the importance and the authority of the word of God, but also the riveting and dramatic initial presentation of David we see unfolding this chapter. The history of David's rise now occupies the rest of 1 Samuel and continues all the way through 2 Samuel chapter 8. Then the rest of David's history takes up there in 2 Samuel 9 and goes all the way through 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. That's a lot of material about David. We should recognize then that it takes quite a while for the transition from Saul to King David to actually take place. No click here and it instantly happens. As God works what he has decreed into reality, we will see constant opportunities to recognize that our view of time seems to be greatly different with God's timeliness. And just in case you haven't noticed that in your own life, here we will be here who knows how long in David's life. As God works what he has decreed into reality, we'll see those constant opportunities before us. And on the one hand, we've already seen how Saul's demise may strike us as evidence that God seems to take very seriously whether we get with his program or not. But on the other hand, we also continue to notice that God is really so patient with us with us sinners, as we stumble and fall on such a regular basis. And in the meantime, we see David, a man who knows that he has been chosen by God to be Israel's king, have to deal over and over and over again with more constant trouble than is humanly possible to endure. Yes, I said that on purpose. That's the point. More than humanly possible to endure. And yet he did because of his God. So maybe there's a few lessons in there about what it means to depend upon the Lord in this life and in this world. There is, of course, a theme to this chapter, and we get a good set of clues from the vocabulary and grammar besides just the drama of it. Starting in the last part of verse 1 where it says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have, and here's the word, provided for myself a king among his sons. This word is used in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament and appears frequently. Those of you that have been in the prophets may see it 
it, it refers to the prophet actually being provided the words of God to speak to God's people. And so it's not always provide. But here in this chapter, we see that the root of this word appears nine times in its verb forms and also as nouns. Uh, In verse 1, the verb here is used in the sense of provide or selected or chosen. And it's also used this way in verse 17. Another verb form means to see or to look at. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. And as a noun, it means appearance. Although there's one time in this chapter where we actually read the English word appearance, and that's not the word. So you have to be kind of careful. But as we see this, we can't help but be reminded of the sovereignty of God, that God provides for himself. He selected or he chose David. So we've got to ask, how does this theme, which is the Lord's choice, how does it fit into the contrast that we see being drawn by God in his word between King Saul and King David? We left chapter 15 last Sunday seeing that Samuel grieved over Saul. And now in verse 1 of chapter 16, we find out that Samuel is still grieving for Saul. Why was Samuel still grieving? This is important to understand. Was Samuel grieving and upset because of a lot of personal things? Like we tend to do when we can't seem to handle some disappointment? Because, you know, our home will never be on HGTV. Chip and Joanne will never choose us to fix it up. Our car just got swiped. We just can't afford what we really think we deserve. Or we're just not fulfilled and we believe strongly that we should be and we have the right to be fulfilled. Or everything seems to be breaking down, including our bodies. Is that what Samuel was grieving in some personal disappointment? I spent my whole life basically with Saul so far. After you chose me, God. What now? Or was Samuel in sorrow over the sin of Israel and her king? It's a big difference. Knowing that they were sure to experience all kinds of what? Misery. More misery. From placing their trust and hopes in themselves and their own devices. Which he had warned the people about when they brought the demand for a king like all the other nations to him. Right then, at this time, in this context, there seemed to be no leadership at all anymore in Israel, and the people seemed very vulnerable to outside enemies in their own civil strife. 
Dale Ralph Davis writes that Samuel was distressed over the spiritual disaster of a promising instrument of God, Saul, and over the welfare of God's people, over their condition and security. You know, I really think this is one of the tests of how we're doing in the maturing in the Lord department. Are we grieved by the right things, or are we so bent out of shape because of our own personal desires not being met the way we think we should that we don't even know, we don't even experience the big picture as we step back and look at all the consequences of sin, both in our own lives and in the people that we live with in the society. We can ask these questions then. Do we ever grieve over, I mean really grieve over, indifference to God and His glory, our own and others? Do we ever grieve over the ignorance of the Bible even among professing Christians in our day? Do we ever grieve over the lack of holiness and zeal, an unknown word anymore, for gospel proclamation of our churches? Samuel is grieving from what we can call really a heavenly perspective. And yet God didn't let him stay there. In the middle of this sorrow, Samuel is given some very good news by the Lord. It's a big change here in 1 Samuel. We haven't seen this happen since somebody named Hannah and then a little boy named Samuel. Really? Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. And that's not the same as put gas in your car so you can go. He kind of probably has some idea that something special. You don't put anointing oil in your traveling bag unless something is about ready to happen because God wants it to. And go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Whoa. God tells Samuel he's ready to mercifully act in this situation. And we see two effects of his good news. This is good news. The first effect is that God brings comfort to his grieving people. He didn't promise that we will never grieve. But he does promise that he will be our comfort in the midst of it until he leads us to something else. And as we've just seen, the Lord gets us ready for his works of mercy by making us aware of the heavenly perspective that we should deal with, which pictures the sinfulness of sin and its consequences. This is so important 
The Lord gets us ready for his works of mercy by making us aware of the beauty of the heavenly perspective of sin and its consequences, both in our own hearts and in groups of people. Does he not? This is the burden out of which we must pray. Especially if you're so bent out of shape about the current state of affairs that you don't know what to do about it. This is what you do about it. In other words, we will not long for and have a burden for revival. It won't be genuine. It won't happen until we are genuinely distressed by the reality of the current sinful situation of our times. We will know that the burden of today's darkness is felt by Christians when they turn anew to the Lord in the kind of fervent prayer for reformation and revival that is so lacking today. Preacher said that. Somebody who's been there. As counterintuitive as it may seem, the comfort that sees clearly the state of affairs. Did you hear that? The comfort that sees clearly the state of affairs is grounded in knowing there is a Savior for sin. And we know him. That'll keep you from just focusing on a Savior in the political realm or in some other realm. If we know that sin is the problem and that it ravages us and the people that we care about or that we live around, then there's one, only one answer, one true hope, and it's the one who came to pay the price for sin. The second effect here of this good news to Samuel is that those living in fear are challenged and encouraged by the Lord to renew their courage. You been there? Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go, for I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. But then Samuel shows fear, his fear. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Has Samuel succumbed too much to his sorrow? Since fearlessly standing for God, it seems like the whole rest of the early part of this book. That's what happens to us. When we grieve way too long and it starts turning inward. We fear everything. And here is this incredible man of faith, and he is fearful. The lesson for us is that while grief is natural, and it is proper at times, it should never be indulged in with unbelief or the fear of man. Because it will neutralize it will blind us. It will keep you from taking the next step. 
verse 2 and 3, then God offers a convenient way for Samuel to avoid trouble with Saul by legitimately traveling to Jesse's home with a heifer for sacrifice. And you know, this is a little bit exciting just to know that, you know, how many times does God often help us in our weakness in situations, even as he equips us for courage and boldness? And he does that often. Verses 4 and 5. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Did you all get that? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel had been afraid to come to Bethlehem because of Saul. But here we see the elders of Bethlehem afraid to see Samuel. What are these guys thinking? Probably their first thought, this is the prophet. The first thought is, what have we done? Because this, this town was way south of where Samuel operated, usually. And they're thinking, why is he here? He just came from chopping up a king of the Amalekites. Uh-oh. He's just told Saul that he's no more the king. And they go back through the history. And it's like, we, you know, it's, this is the man of God. We'll, we, we honor him, but what is God? They're saying, what is God doing? And are we in trouble? What have we done? Are we going to be rebuked by God? So Jesse's sons begin to gather for this sacrifice after Samuel puts them somewhat at ease. And there's a sacrifice here and a subsequent feast. Verse 6 and 7, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord anointed is before him. Now why would he think that? He looked like it. Even God's faithful servants look on the wrong things. We do this so much we don't even recognize we're doing it. But the Lord said, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So not only did he look good, he was what? Like Saul, he was taller than everybody. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The point here is not that God opposes a good-looking person, a good appearance. And that should be really obvious, because when we do meet David, how is he described? Ruddy. Now, I was taught my whole life that was a positive thing because I heard it had something to do with red. And I used to have red hair. I don't know whether that's true or not. It might have been he was, he was kind of outdoorsy and whatever. And all you girls probably understand that better than any guy in here. But this is not a negative thing. 
the next one everybody gets. He had beautiful eyes. Have you ever seen that mentioned anywhere in Scripture before when you're introduced to somebody? What else? What else do we see? And it says handsome, it says handsome in the ESV, but the word appearance, that word we're talking about the other way, uh, this is the noun use of that provided word from see and look at, is here. And so we could read it. He is ruddy and beautiful eyes, and he has a handsome appearance. The point is that appearance neither qualifies or disqualifies. It simply doesn't matter. That's hard for us to understand in our culture. If you would guess, what do you, what do you think the percentage is of young people who try to invent themselves according to all the media, wherever they live, it's different, different places, as far as what would be cool, what would be respectable, what would be whatever group they want to be in, how they try beyond measure to orient their whole lives around this. And how many of us over the hill think that we're going to live forever so we spend way too much time trying to do what? Replace everything that's broken or that has left or whatever it may be. Staying physically whatever as long as you can is a good thing, but making it an idol and a god is not a good thing. And here, this is a really important message. Appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It simply doesn't matter. Do we need to point out anymore that we live in a world where physical beauty outranks spiritual depth? Where success in business and in church tends to be defined as in materialistic terms? Or where charisma is prized above character? It happens over and over and over again. God is not fooled by any type of appearance or hampered by our limitations and foolishness. He looks on the heart and sees the truth about a person's character, about a person's faith, about a person's values and desires. This is why God desired to be the one to provide this king. Do you see? This is so glaring, maybe we just skip it. The people wanted a king like all the other nations had. Remember? Saul was at least head and shoulders above the height of everybody else. He looked the part. That's what they wanted. God is showing them very, very clearly that it doesn't matter because they cared about stuff that they shouldn't care about for a leader. So this is why God wants to raise up leaders for the church today by his own calling. 
How? We see in God's word that usually, now he does things differently, but usually you don't see these self-invented people popping up with a plan. They implement the plan. They know how to get people and do it, and they're not accountable to anybody on the face of the earth. And what does God do? Usually it's described as a, a minister especially, but other people, they're called, they have an inner call from God, and that is what? There's a legitimacy kind of test from the people amongst whom they live with and work with and serve with that say, yes, I recognize that this person has been called by God to do such and such. Very different. Because this is so important. He, God, even gives us the qualifications in his word for leaders in the church. Because, why? Because we so often think we know better. Well, then we see Samuel proceed through the same process for Jesse's sons, Abinadab and Shema, and there's the same results. Total seven sons with the same result. Everyone was not the one that God had chosen. You know, Samuel's kind of puzzled here for a second, and then he gets it, doesn't he? The only thing that made sense to Samuel was that they weren't all there. Kind of like a biblical Cinderella story, sort of, kind of, not really. She's up in the attic hiding because of the wicked stepmother. Where is she? But you wonder where those ideas come from because this is a dramatic presentation of the future king. Uh, God is doing something incredible here, full of mercy and grace, something completely unexpected. Because the runt of the family is out with the sheep. Get him here. Samuel says, we're not eating the feast until he gets here. So here comes, and we don't even know his name yet, the youngest son. Y'all ever know anybody that heard sheep? Smelled great. Here he comes to the feast. Samuel also instantly obeys when he gets there. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward to equip him for the service to which he was called, which we read earlier in an earlier chapter. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Dale Ralph Davis writes... um, So here we have another of Yahweh's who would have thought episodes. Who would have thought it'd be him? You ever thought that about anybody God's raised up and used? History is full of God's surprises. There was no need, so Jesse imagined, to invite the youngest. He could stay with the sheep. In fact, the youngest son is so obscure that we we aren't even told his name until verse 13. Yet Yahweh insisted, this is the one. And again we see God's strange 
and refreshing way of trampling on human standards. Again, we see how Yahweh chooses the most unlikely people from our perspective to do His will and how He frequently stands human logic on its head. Our God is not a slave to our conventions. And He proves it over and over and over again. Just look around. Perhaps at no time did the living God disclose a more flabbergasting choice than in the case of David's greater descendant. The vote was in. The folks at home said, he's just one of us. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are, we not, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Others complain he enjoys himself too much. David's greater descendant. For John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. And still others objected, he's not from the right place. This is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. But the clincher for many was the one that's the clincher for us. Messiahs don't suffer. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Does this hit home? We don't have anything close on our Savior. And what clout did this opinion pack? Absolutely none. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Peter says of Christ in 1 Peter 2, 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. This is a little commentary on that verse in Psalm. Well, what should we deduce from that? We should realize that God has made his choice, which is the theme of this chapter. We should say, as Psalm 118 says, Verse 23a, which is right after Psalm 118.22 that said the living stone rejected by men. What does it say in Psalm 118.23? First, we need to say this. This is the Lord's doing. 
You can't put it anywhere else. Nobody else provided this guy. There wasn't a secret clan meeting between Jesse and his family. This was all of God. And second, we should relish it. This should be encouraging to us. It should give us hope. It should give us the courage to know that God can raise up rocks if he wanted to, which he actually says. God provides. Because Psalm 118.23b says, It is marvelous in our eyes. Our response should be, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And there is no grief in those statements, is there? There is a delight here that we should have. A delight in God's unusual and unguessable ways. It honors him when we revel in his surprises. Are we surprised that God does this? We shouldn't be. It honors him when we revel in his surprises and we end up saying something like Psalm 27, 4. We gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's one of the reasons why. The Lord chose David to be the king and the Lord equipped him for that work. Because this is God's initiative, we must understand that this anointing here that we read expresses God's obligation to the king, his election of him. In other words, this choice of David and his anointing places the whole rest of this story kind of like under an umbrella of divine promise and blessing. It's a covenant. And we must also recognize that as soon as the Spirit rushes upon David in this equipping function that David, what happens? Almost immediately. Parades through the town, countryside rising up. Finally, somebody from Bethlehem makes it. Um, Speeches all in the schools. What's going on after this? Almost immediate trouble. Immediate trouble. And we see it in Saul's envy, in his anger, in his resentment, in his bitterness, in his evil plots in the coming chapters. That's all we're going to be reading about for chapters and chapters. David will be hunted. He will be betrayed. He will be lied to. He will be trapped, barely escaping time after time, hiding Living in exile. Sounds like a life you want to sign up for? All the way through 1 Samuel. That's it. The Spirit comes and the trouble begins. Anybody going, that's not fair. I finally decide to believe in Christ and everything falls apart. Is this true for Christ? 
this is my beloved son. What happens next? Taken to the wilderness, tempted by Satan himself. What happened in three short years? Hunted? Conspired against? Betrayed? Barely escaping several times? Yes, David is a type of the coming Messiah, the King. We're, we're going to try to make all these connections as we go through it, or at least as many as we can see by God's grace. Don't miss the point in your personal life. What was true for our Lord will also mark us. Acts 14.22, that verse that nobody wants to read, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We, we've got to remember and encourage each other with the truth that when tribulation or trouble comes, it's not normally a sign of sin. It's a sign of sonship or daughtership. It's a sign you belong to him. That we're not under God's displeasure, we're under his training and discipline. That the wilderness is not the sign of the Spirit's absence, but the scene of his presence. Sonship, his training, his discipline, same thing. And the scene of his presence. Because you will come to know who is really faithful, whose power you really must depend on, etc., etc. That's it for today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we want to be so perfectly comfortable, no problems, no issues, no confrontations. No disappointments. And yet we read over and over in Scripture that you bring us to yourself, you show us our hearts, you change our hearts, you give us the faith to believe in the one who paid the penalty for us that we deserve. And then we expect to immediately be transported to heaven in your presence without anything else to deal with. Instead of what scripture teaches, that we are in the wilderness in this life. That we can enjoy the blessings and the beauty that you provide in ways that no one else can. And at the same time, we can see your faithfulness. We can see you do things we do not expect. We can be glad in the midst of of sorrow even that you give us Christ to and these situations so that we can proclaim who the hope can only be in for our world. Oh, encourage us with these words. Take the fear out of our hearts instead of saying, oh, what's going to happen next? We need to start thinking, oh God, you are so great. 
What will you do through whatever you bring, whatever you allow? Whether it looks good or looks bad, because you are faithful. You keep your promises. Help us look with those eyes of hope. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for a benediction? The grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Here's me.